In this final part of lecture four, we are going to talk about two doctrines, paramountcy and interjurisdictional immunity. And both of these doctrines deal with the repercussions of what we talked about in the last episode, the fact that federal and provincial legislative jurisdiction, well, exclusive under the words of the Constitution, in fact, allows for a significant amount of overlap. This is that flexible modern federalism that we talked about, where the same thing can be in one sense within provincial jurisdiction and in another sense within federal jurisdiction. Remember the term that is used to describe this is the double aspect doctrine. That's the idea that the same matter, the same subject matter, can be in one sense federal and in another sense provincial. So these doctrines, paramountcy and interjurisdictional immunity, resolve two different issues that can arise as a result of this flexible modern federalism that allows for some overlap. And the way you're going to hear these described in the cases and in this lecture is there's a question of operability and applicability. So there's operability is where you use the paramountcy doctrine and applicability is the interjurisdictional immunity doctrine. And of course, earlier in this lecture, we talked about validity, where you use the pith and substance doctrine. So I'll come back to this as I go through them, but you want to think big picture. Validity is the pith and substance doctrine. Operability is the paramountcy doctrine. And applicability is the interjurisdictional immunity doctrine. And the difference between these things is this. Validity tells you if the law is within the jurisdiction of the legislature that enacted it. If a law is invalid, it's struck down. That's simple. Operability and paramountcy deals with conflicts between two pieces of legislation. We'll get into when there's a real conflict. But the reason it's not called validity is that these are conflicts between two valid laws. There have been laws that have both been found to be within the jurisdiction of the legislature that enacted the law, and yet they nevertheless come into conflict. What happens is the provincial law is declared inoperable to the extent of the conflict. This means that so long as that federal law stays in existence, and stays in conflict, the provincial law will not operate. But it's not the same as invalidity, because if that federal law were to be repealed or changed so there wasn't a conflict anymore, then the provincial law would still be there. It was never declared invalid, and it would begin to operate. So to the extent of the conflict, the provincial law is inoperable. Applicability, the interjurisdictional immunity doctrine, talks about to whom or to what an otherwise valid law can be applied. And we'll get to that in a minute, so I won't get into that doctrine because it can be a bit confusing if you don't see the whole thing at once. So validity, 
pith and substance, operability, paramountcy. And the question is, what do you do when you have two laws that conflict? And the answer is quite easy. The federal law is operable. The provincial law does not operate while there is a conflict. Where things get confusing is in deciding where is there an actual conflict. So the solution is easy. The solution is simply, okay, if there's a conflict, federal law triumphs. Federal law is going to be the one that operates. The provincial law will not operate until the conflict goes away. But what is it going to take for there to be a conflict sufficient for this doctrine to be invoked? The case we have on that is Maloney. And in Maloney, you had Mr. Maloney caused a car accident while he was uninsured. The way the scheme works is the province of Alberta compensated an individual injured in the accident and then sought to recover compensation from Mr. Maloney. So the insurance scheme works that if you get hit by an uninsured person, there's a fund that's maintained that can allow you to get some compensation. But then the government has expended money to compensate the injured person, and they can go after the person who caused that injury, the uninsured person, to recover what they can from that person to replenish the fund. Now, Section 102 of the Alberta Traffic Safety Act allowed the province to suspend Mr. Maloney's license and permits until he paid back this compensation. So they said, listen, we've paid whatever the amount of money is, let's call it $50,000 out to this person you injured while you were uninsured. If you want your driver's license, you pay us that $50,000 back. Until you do, you can't get a driver's license. No question that the licensing of drivers is within provincial jurisdiction. No question that the province can have an insurance scheme that pays people out, and no question they can seek to recover what they have paid out from somebody who is at fault. All these things that Alberta does are squarely within their jurisdiction. However, Mr. Maloney makes an assignment into bankruptcy and is eventually discharged. Bankruptcy law in Canada is federal. That makes some sense because if somebody goes through a bankruptcy, you want to be able to deal with all their debts and liabilities at once. And just to give a very quick primer on how bankruptcy law works, the idea is that when you go into bankruptcy, everybody you owe a debt to has to come forward and assert their debt. And then the trustee in bankruptcy will collect as many of the uh, bankrupt's assets as they can, and then they will distribute those assets to the various debtors according to a very complicated formula that looks at who has a security interest, etc., etc. We'll get into that. But the fundamental idea in bankruptcy law is you want to get everybody's debts every obligation that can be turned into money at all. You want to get it all before the trustee in bankruptcy. On the other hand, if you have a claim against somebody who's in bankruptcy, if that person owes you something, you prefer not to be within the bankruptcy process. You'd prefer to have that obligation just survive bankruptcy so that you could collect it after the person's out of bankruptcy. Because usually you're going to look at getting 
pennies on the dollar. If somebody owes you $100 and they go through bankruptcy, you know, you'd be lucky if you get 10, 15 of those $100 back. So the idea with a bankruptcy system is you want to have this fresh start where all the debts, all the liabilities, all the obligations come before the trustee, are recognized, are monetized, are paid out from what the person has, and then they can emerge from bankruptcy, rehabilitated with a fresh start and a chance to go forward without these old debts and obligations hanging over their head. That's the fresh start idea of bankruptcy. So I think you may be able to see where this is going. So Mr. Maloney goes through bankruptcy. He's discharged. He waltzes over to the driving license place and says, okay, let me get my driver's license. And they say, absolutely. As soon as you pay us that money you owe for that time when you injured somebody when you didn't have insurance. And he says, hold on, hold on. I've, I've gone through bankruptcy. And they say, well, sure, fair enough, but that doesn't mean I have to give you a driver's license. That's my choice. I'm choosing to not give you a driver's license. I would choose differently if you paid me the money. So is this a real conflict? Does the federal bankruptcy law conflict with Alberta's ability to collect this money from somebody who hurt an individual while uninsured by denying them the driver's license that they need until they pay that money? That's the question. Is this a conflict wherein paramountcy will apply? And we know that if it does, if paramountcy does apply, then the answer will be you have to follow the federal law. But is there a conflict? And the Supreme Court of Canada said that there are two different ways you can establish a conflict between federal and provincial legislation sufficient to have the doctrine of paramountcy apply. The first is called impossibility of dual compliance. The other is called frustration of federal purpose. Impossibility of dual compliance means I simply can't do both things. This comes up when one piece of legislation tells you to do something and the other legislation tells you not to do something. Frustration of federal purpose, on the other hand, can apply when it may be possible to do both things, but if you were forced to do both things, this would frustrate the purpose of the federal law. And it can be difficult to see when you have a true impossibility of dual compliance, because quite often what you have is a situation where one government has said that you may do something, and another government has said that you can't do something. So for example, if you were trying to build a mine and that mine needed you to, for instance, destroy a lake. I dealt with a case that had these exact facts, actually. The Seiko Mines wanted to build a mine. To do so, they needed a tailings pond. They decided to dump uh, their tailings in a lake, unfortunately for them, called Fish Lake. The federal government said, no, you can't do that. The provincial government said, it doesn't bother us. So the province was prepared to give them the permits they needed for the mine, but the federal government wasn't. The province said, you may do this. The federal government said, you can't do this. Now, is that a real conflict with an impossibility of dual compliance? No, because if one person just says, you may do something, and the other says, you can't do something, you can comply with both by just not doing that thing. 
where you have a true impossibility of dual compliance is where you have one level of government saying you must do something and another level of government saying you can't do something. There you really cannot comply with both. So where does this case fall? Well, there is a majority and a dissent who viewed the question differently on impossibility of dual compliance. For the majority, Justice Gascon said, yes, there is an impossibility of dual compliance here for Mr. Maloney. He says there is true incompatibility because the laws give inconsistent answers to the question of whether there is an enforceable debt obligation. The Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act says there is no obligation here. It's been discharged in bankruptcy. The Alberta Act says there is an obligation. You have to pay this money if you want your license. But couldn't you just comply with both by paying the debt? And the Justice Gascon for the majority says no. This is the province compelling a payment of a claim that has been released, and that's a direct contradiction of the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act. The Act says that this claim cannot be enforced. Alberta is trying to enforce this claim. Justice Gascon also said, well, that this would frustrate the federal purpose because the idea is to give someone a fresh start. And if you were to allow a province to enforce a debt, by withholding a license, this would frustrate the purpose of the act vis-a-vis -vis giving the debtor a fresh start. We also have, though, the concurring decision of Justice Cote. Justice Cote's reasons are concurring because she agreed there would be a frustration of federal purpose. However, she did not agree this was a case of a true impossibility of dual compliance. She said, for two laws to conflict, each one has to say exactly the opposite of what the other says. A less direct conflict is not enough. And Justice Cote says, well, would, it, would dual compliance be possible here? She says, yes, you could comply with both by going through your Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act and then choosing not to drive or by paying the debt. So she says it's not a situation where someone is left in a bind where they couldn't possibly fail to break either provincial or federal law, i.e. one says you must do something, the other says you can't do something. What can you do? You, you, you're going to be in trouble either way. And those instances, she says, are rare. However, she says that you still get to the same result here because to apply the law would frustrate the federal purpose. That is, there wouldn't be a clean start for Mr. Maloney and the purpose of the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act would be undermined. So what I want you to take away on this case is that there are these two ways to get a conflict sufficient to have the doctrine of paramountcy apply. One is for there to be an impossibility of dual compliance. And I want you to remember that there's some disagreement even at the Supreme Court of Canada level as to what is going to be necessary for there to be an impossibility of dual compliance. At its most fundamental level, what you want to look for is a case where one government says you must do something and the other government says you cannot do something. However, the court has, at least in the majority opinion of Maloney, shown a willingness to also say that if one law says that you don't have to do something and another law says that you do have to do that thing, this could suffice to establish an impossibility of dual compliance. 
So it's a subtly different proposition if you think about it. So the one is saying, the one that is clearly an impossibility of dual compliance is saying, you have to do something and you can't do something. That's the one everybody can agree is a true impossibility of dual compliance. What you had in Maloney was one law saying, you do have to pay something. Another law saying, you do not have to pay that thing. Subtly different because as Justice Cote notes, if you just do that thing, then you've complied with both. The one said you don't have to do something. The other says you do have to do something. You haven't broken the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act in any sense by paying that money that you owe. So that's where there can be a bit of fuzziness around this idea of an impossibility of dual compliance. And I want you to just have that as the takeaway, that the basic idea is if the federal laws and the provincial laws are giving you different answers, you may have an impossibility of dual compliance. But the degree to which the court is going to demand that it would be literally impossible to not break the law, to not break one of those two laws, is a bit variable. And then also think about this frustration of federal purpose idea, this idea that if applying the provincial law would mean that the federal purpose could no longer be accomplished, even if there isn't an impossibility of dual compliance, you still will have a conflict. The federal government must be able to effectively accomplish its goals without those valid goals being frustrated through the invocation of provincial law. So that's paramountcy, big picture. What is paramountcy? It's the question of what do you do when you have federal law and provincial law in conflict? What is the answer? You apply the federal law. When is there a conflict? When you can show either that it would be impossible to comply with both laws, or when you can show the federal purpose would be frustrated by applying the provincial law. Of the two doctrines we're going to discuss, that is the easier one. I'm going to talk next about a doctrine that is often thought of as the bane of many a Canadian law student's existence when you get to constitutional law. It's called interjurisdictional immunity. And there's been some questioning as to whether it even ought to exist anymore. The Supreme Court of Canada has been very clear in expressing that they do not favor extensive reliance on this doctrine. And yet I hope to both explain to you why it's a necessary part of Canadian federalism and hopefully make it less difficult to understand than how it is sometimes presented. And to do this, I'm going to start with a hypothetical example. So section 91 sub 9 of the Constitution Act 1867 gives exclusive jurisdiction over lighthouses to the federal government. So when you see these beautiful lighthouses in, on postage stamps and postcards, Canadian lighthouses, those are being run by and paid for by the federal government, okay? Generally, however, the regulation of buildings within the province is a matter in provincial jurisdiction. So imagine a provincial law that said, we are concerned with having beautiful views of the ocean, and we are going to restrict building heights within 10 meters of the shoreline 
you can't build higher than one story. And furthermore, we are concerned with what it looks like when you look at these uh, Miami Beach where you have these tall, bright buildings right by the ocean. We think that that's going to hurt the local wildlife and it's going to be unsightly. So there will be a limit on how bright you can shine your lights if you are within 10 meters of the shoreline. Would that be valid provincial law? Absolutely. Those are both issues that are squarely within provincial jurisdiction. Building heights and regulating things like illumination. Absolutely within provincial jurisdiction. But what would be the effect of saying that you can't build higher than a story and you can't shine a bright light if you're near the ocean? Well, it basically would be to outlaw lighthouses. So you'd have valid provincial law that would have the effect of seriously impairing the federal government's ability to have lighthouses, a matter which is specifically assigned to them in the Constitution. So what's the solution here? Do you strike down the provincial law and say, well, look, even though I know you have the jurisdiction to deal with building heights and I know you have the jurisdiction to deal with lights, but you're touching on lighthouses here, so the whole act has to go down. You've got to strike the whole thing down. Try again. Or is it easier for the court to just say, all right, I get it that you have this building height restriction and you have this illumination restriction, but we're just not going to apply it to lighthouses. Uh, obviously, that's the more easy and straightforward answer. And that is what the doctrine of interjurisdictional immunity is about. It's when you take a law that is valid and applies generally, but you say that it can't apply in one specific situation because it would impair the ability of the other government to legislate in relation to something in its jurisdiction. And this comes up a lot. And always traditionally, with very few exceptions that are even the exceptions that are a bit controversial, whether they're true exceptions or not, it always operates to benefit the federal government as opposed to the provincial government. It's inevitably general provincial law that is read down so as to not apply to specific things in federal jurisdiction. Let's take, for example, airports. Airports are part of federal jurisdiction. Many provincial governments have noise restrictions within cities. This is maybe municipal law, but municipal law is merely a delegated form of provincial law. So you have a noise restriction. It doesn't apply to an airport because if you couldn't have those noises, you couldn't have an airport. That would impair federal jurisdiction over air travel. And so ultimately, this idea of interjurisdictional immunity is necessary for this purpose. And I'll say it quite straightforward. If it did not exist, you could accomplish indirectly through generally worded legislation what you could not accomplish directly through specifically worded legislation. For example, with the lighthouses, if you were to say, I hate lighthouses. I'm the provincial government. I'm going to pass the British Columbia Lighthouse Act of 2020, which says there shall be no lighthouses. They are banned. 
that would be plainly invalid legislation because it would be in pith and substance in relation to lighthouses and lighthouses are assigned exclusively to the federal jurisdiction. But without interjurisdictional immunity, you could, through this generally worded legislation about building heights and about illumination, accomplish the same goal, the same unconstitutional goal of outlawing lighthouses. So interjurisdictional immunity prevents a government from doing indirectly through generally worded legislation what it couldn't do directly through specifically worded legislation. And it accomplishes that by saying that you must read down the general so as not to apply in a situation where it would impair the core of a power assigned to the other level of government. And this is the test that has developed. It's the idea that every granting of jurisdiction has some core that can't be impaired by legislation enacted by the other level of government. The idea would be that despite the flexible overlapping federalism, you can't go too far, you can't go so far that you're effectively leaving nothing to a head of power explicitly assigned to the other level of government. You have to leave some core that is truly exclusive. In relation to lighthouses, it might be the existence and operation of lighthouses. In relation to airports, it's been found to be something along the lines of the location and existence and operation of airports. The provincial government can't, through general legislation, do something that will prevent the federal government from deciding where airports operate and how they operate. So that's the basic idea. Every head of power, every power listed in sections 91 and 92 of the Constitution Act has some fundamental core. And just as the other level of government couldn't pass legislation that in pith and substance related to that core, nor can they pass general legislation and then apply that so as to impair that core. Hopefully that makes some sense. If you're a bit confused, that is normal. And it is that confusion and dissatisfaction with this doctrine that has led the Supreme Court of Canada to say they do not favor extensive reliance on it. And for that, we have the Canadian Western Bank case. So this was a case where there was Alberta legislation amending its Insurance Act to make federally charted banks subject to a licensing scheme in relation to the sale of some insurance products. So you have banks selling insurance and Alberta says, okay, well, I get that you're a bank and I know that banking is a federal matter, but you're not engaged in banking right now. You're just selling insurance. Insurance is a provincial matter. That's true as a general rule. We're going to make this explicitly applicable to you. We're going to take away an exception that have previously made you not subject to this general legislation, this generally worded insurance legislation that previously didn't apply to you explicitly. We're going to say, you know what, you're, you're bound by the same general rules as anybody else marketing insurance. Well, banks didn't want to be regulated. So they challenged that and said, aha, 
interjurisdictional immunity. We're a federal entity, and you are applying provincial law to us. So the Supreme Court of Canada said, listen, we don't like interjurisdictional immunity. We frankly, if you read between the lines, we wish it wasn't a thing, but we are reconciled to the fact that it is a thing. It has to be a thing. But we're going to say this is a doctrine of limited application, and we are going to consider it last in Division of Powers cases, after validity and after paramountcy. They say, can you resolve this constitutional issue otherwise without having to get into interjurisdictional immunity? Why? Well, they say it's contrary to this dominant tide of flexible modern federalism. Courts should favor the operation of statutes by both levels of government unless they come directly into conflict. And they don't like the idea of an abstract core of every head of power because these cores haven't been worked out. And generally speaking, the law has been operating well without having to worry too much about defining well, what's the core of federal power over the seacoast and inland fisheries? What's the core of weights and measures? These are specific powers assigned to the federal government. They say, I don't like these cores, but we do get the idea that you have to have some content in every head of power. So we don't like the uncertainty. We don't like going against the dominant tide of flexible modern federalism. They say we don't want to create a legal vacuum because, of course, you think about um, paramountcy and it only comes into play when there's two laws that affect a area. And the consequence of a successful invocation of paramountcy is to make one law inoperable and the other law applies. The consequence of a successful application of interjurisdictional immunity can be that no law applies because it doesn't need a situation where there is validly enacted legislation by the other government in the Canadian Western Bank example, it wouldn't matter if the federal government was regulating the marketing of insurance. If this was something that was exclusively within this core, regardless of whether the federal government had ever tried to do any of this insurance regulation, it would still be inapplicable, leaving a legal vacuum. And the court said, we don't like legal vacuums. They also note that generally speaking, this law has this doctrine has operated to benefit the federal government. I'll get to that again at the end. I mentioned it earlier. I'll get to it again at the end. And they say it's unnecessary because if we start applying provincial law in a way the federal government doesn't like, it can simply use paramountcy. It can simply pass a new law that says, no, you can do what the province is saying you can't do. So in the lighthouse example, there, the federal government could pass the Lighthouse Existence Act, which says there can be lighthouses at this height, or there must be lighthouses that are at least this high and have this much illumination. Then you just be in a paramount seat, no problem. But with those caveats in mind, the court says, we are going to still recognize this as a doctrine, a part of Canadian federalism, and we'll set out a test. And what they say is interjurisdictional immunity will apply so that a law will be read down if applying it as proposed would impair the core of jurisdiction assigned to the other level of government. Generally, they say, this should only be used in situations that have already been covered by precedent. They don't want to see a dramatic expansion 
of the doctrine of interjurisdictional immunity. And they also say that they prefer to see it in relation to heads of power that are things, uh, lighthouses, airports, entities, undertakings, as opposed to broad concepts like criminal law. What's the core of federal power over criminal law? It's too abstract a question. Moving on to the case, should it apply in this case? The court says no. They say the banking power under Section 9115 is broad, and no prior case suggests that federal banks are protected by interjurisdictional immunity from provincial insurance laws. So whatever this unassailable core of the banking power is, and no doubt it includes the very existence of banks would be protected under that core. But just trying to regulate how you sell insurance, if you happen to be a bank, that's not getting at the core of what it means to be a bank. And so we're not going to say that applying this general legislation to banks would impair the core of a federal head of power. All right, so then the next case we have is the PHS Insight case. And it's a case we're going to come back to in the charter context, I believe. Fascinating case. So in the early 1990s, injection drug use reaches an epidemic level in Vancouver's downtown east side. And it still is. It's a crisis. It's, it's awful um, what has happened to so many people um, from the injection drugs going on. One of the great success stories of the downtown east side is Insight. It's a supervised injection site where people bring their drugs and they take them under the supervision of a medical professional. To date, there has still never been a death at Insight. There have been many overdoses, but there's always a medical professional there with Narcan to administer and save the person's life. Insight was run by the Portland Hotel Society. That's the PHS, the Portland Hotel Society. It's a nonprofit organization that had a provincial contract with the health authority. Now, the problem is that Insight needed an exception from the Federal Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, federal criminal law that prohibits possession and trafficking of drugs like heroin and cocaine. And the people at Insight would take possession. They would help you with the drugs. They were assisting people to take the drugs. Without an exception from the general rule, they would be breaking the criminal law, the people who worked at Insight. So in 2003, the Minister of Health gave an exception from the operation, the federal minister of health gave an exception to Insight to allow the staff there to handle the drugs. But in 2008, there was a new government and they said they would deny the application to renew that permit. Uh, it's a conservative government and they didn't like the harm reduction approach to drugs and they preferred to prohibit drugs. They didn't like the imagery of the government you know, endorsing people using these addictive drugs. So then two nonprofit organizations and two clients launched a constitutional challenge in BC Supreme Court. And one thing they argued was that the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act was inapplicable to Insight because it violated interjurisdictional immunity. And what is so interesting is this is a case where there is an allegation that federal law shouldn't apply because it would impair the core of a provincial power. And as I mentioned earlier, with maybe one or two exceptions, and even the exceptions are controversial, interjurisdictional immunity has always protected federal power from provincial legislation. Here was a challenge saying, well, 
this is federal law that's going to impair the core of provincial jurisdiction. And in Canadian Western Bank and its companion case, Lafarge, the Supreme Court of Canada had said, yeah, in theory, the doctrine does work both ways. And so Insight, they said, well, here it is. It works both ways. Protect us. Now, the trouble was, though, they, they couldn't really identify what head of power they were saying the application of the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act would impair the core of. They said, well, Section 92.7 gives the provincial government jurisdiction over hospitals. 92.13 has property and civil rights. 92.16 is matters of a local and private nature. And they said all of those combined give the province jurisdiction over health care. And so it's really the core of the health care power. And they were successful at the BC Court of Appeal on this argument. Madam Justice Huddert said, yeah, indeed, there is a proper invocation of interjurisdictional immunity in this case. The Supreme Court of Canada disagreed. They said, why? Well, one, it's never been recognized in the jurisprudence before that there's been this core of health power for the provinces. There's not been any description of it. We've never done an interjurisdictional immunity in this way. So it's not fatal, but we are reluctant to identify new areas of immunity. More importantly, though, they say the provincial health power is broad and extensive and overlaps with Parliament's jurisdiction over criminal law. There's a long-established jurisdiction to prohibit medically or medical treatments that are deemed socially undesirable. And we've looked at that in the context of abortion, that federal criminal law over abortion existed. And there's charter issues that we'll talk about, but on a uh, division of powers basis, there was never any question that parliament could criminalize abortion. We'll see assisted human reproduction later, I think next class actually, uh, cloning, things like that have also been regulated federally with reference to a criminal law power. So there's an overlap between provincial health and federal criminal law power, which doesn't admit of an easy identification of a core. And they say this would also potentially create legal vacuums. Parliament could not legislate in controversial medical procedures like human cloning or euthanasia. So the court said we're not going to say there's this core of a healthcare power that is violated by applying the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act to insight. This is an example of a failed attempt to invoke interjurisdictional immunity to protect to protect provincial jurisdiction from federal law applying. And it's an illustration of how limited the court will see the doctrine of interjurisdictional immunity in general. And so the the hope of a significant application of interjurisdictional immunity to provincial jurisdiction to protect provincial jurisdiction was not realized in insight. And I, I've been teasing that I'll explain why I think this has been the case historically. Well, the reason I think this has been the case historically that interjurisdictional immunity is operated to protect federal jurisdiction from provincial law as opposed to protect provincial jurisdiction from the application of federal law is something that I mentioned last class or maybe earlier this lecture that residual powers fall to the province, generally speaking. The division of powers more or less operates on a presumption that things will be provincial, 
unless they're assigned to the federal government. And when you look at the provincial list of powers, there is this one, 9213, Property and Civil Rights, that has been interpreted extremely broadly. And we're going to get to that more next lecture. But it's the idea that property and civil rights is, in essence, the residual power. If there's something that doesn't fit in other powers, it probably falls down into property and civil rights. Federal powers tend to be limited and over specific things, specific physical things like airports and railways and telecommunications and banks, or specific ideas like bankruptcy, criminal law. Many things that would otherwise potentially be swallowed up by the provincial power over property and civil rights. So this interjurisdictional immunity doctrine is necessary when you're dealing with specific grants of power that could otherwise be swallowed up by general grants of power. The broad general property and civil rights, the way it's been interpreted, would, if not for explicit power to the federal government over banking, have certainly covered banking. It would certainly have covered bankruptcy. It would certainly have covered marriage and divorce, to use an example of an issue we looked at earlier. So because the way the powers are distributed is big picture, you can think a, a general power going to the province and then specific exceptions from that power going to the federal government. It makes sense that the doctrine that protects specific powers from being swallowed up by general powers would operate in favor of the government that has those specific powers, the federal government. Now, that's just my theory, but um, I think it, it's probably explicative of why the federal government has been the beneficiary of interjurisdictional immunity. So what do you need to know about interjurisdictional immunity? You want to know it exists. You want to know why it exists. And it's this idea that you don't want the government to be able to do indirectly through generally worded legislation what it couldn't have done directly. You couldn't pass a law province that outlaws lighthouses, so you can't apply generally worded legislation to have that same effect. What does it protect? It protects the core of the jurisdiction assigned by a head of power. In theory, it protects provincial and federal heads of power. In practice, it has operated in a one-sided manner to protect the federal government's jurisdiction. It can be a difficult concept to wrap your head around at first, but let's spend some time with it, think it through. Hopefully it makes some sense. We'll talk about it in our discussion and we'll review it as well as we follow through with the course. So that concludes lecture number four. And in the next lecture, lecture five, we'll start exploring some of the heads of power assigned under sections 91 and 92 to get a sense as to what is federal and what is provincial in terms of responsibilities in Canada. It's an important lecture to understand how the balance of power has actually shaken out. So thank you for your attention and look forward to discussing this on Thursday.